Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Valentine Val Smith spent 45 years in police and military service, specialising in investigations. Val also helped create the Victorian Crime Stoppers program and worked in VicPol's Industrial Relations Division. After leaving VicPol 10 years ago, Val's been a consultant for Stopline, an organisation that provides the private sector with investigative forensic and whistleblowing services, the Victorian Department of Justice and Crime Stoppers International. Val's also the director and founder of an international company, Missing Persons Network. They specialise in missing persons cold cases. He joins us on the crime couch to discuss a couple of cold cases. Hi Val and welcome back to the crime couch. Hello Rochelle, it's great to be back and thanks again. What was it like leaping Val from VicPole into the private sector? Look, for me, it was quite easy because the 15 or 16 years I was with Crime Stoppers, I was working alongside of a lot of people from the private sector and the media. So I, and I almost ran Crime Stoppers on my part of it, like a business. So that was quite an easy, easy jump for me. I didn't have a problem at all. What were your challenges, your initial challenges? My challenges in coming into the private sector? I didn't have any at all, and I, and I think part of the reason for that too also was that working for Stopline, which was founded by uh, a number of people, including uh, Bob Falconer, the former West Australian and Victorian Police Commissioner, Alan Pocock and uh, Wayne Bruce, who, were, who I knew prior to starting at Stopline, who uh, two of them had uh, extensive police background. So it was like stepping back into police force of about 1970-something, which was which was um, quite uh, friendly and uh, and it was great, you know. Would have been like getting the band back. It was, and it was really interesting because you'd have the, the boss that sort of come down and see you in the morning and say, would you like a cup of coffee and a crumpet, Val? You know, and all of a sudden the boss is making you a cup of coffee. Very old world and so pedantic and accurate on how the job was done, the job was done properly, you know. certainly almost had a little bit of a military flavour to it, which was what the police force was like in some respects back in the 70s. You left uh, Victoria Police, but of course you've kept on investigating and specifically often pro bono on a number of missing persons cold cases. Why? What keeps you investigating these matters? It's like, it's like a lot of things, you know, you, you pick up a challenge and you have to take it through to its conclusion, you know, and, uh, and that'll be for the rest of my life, I think, with missing persons. When I was transitioning out of the, out of the police, I knew that I needed something to keep my mind active, really keep my mind active, you know. I don't play golf or anything like that. I love the bush, but, you know, I didn't want just the physical. I wanted the mental challenges. And I found out about a case of a little missing boy, a 10-year-old, Damien McKenzie. 
And back in 1974, that happened. And of course, now it's 2013. And when I started to get interested in that case, I sort of, uh, I found that there was a massive ground search, but there was no corresponding investigation of any sort in relation to his disappearance. And I thought that was a huge gap. So I started. And then away I went. And then all of a sudden, to understand that case, I had to understand uh, similar cases and look at similar cases from across the world. And that's how that happened. What's the motivation, Val, behind your company, Missing Persons Network? Missing Persons Network was set up by myself and Bob Grieve. Bob Grieve was a um, well-known in media circles and uh, an old friend of mine from, from the Crime Stoppers days. And and we the the motivation behind it was that we 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 focused on the network and the it's in, it's about missing persons investigation so it's the investigative network that's what we're looking at network of investigators so it's loose knit there's no real membership it's just a, a hub for people to um, to connect to to provide uh, in, information and to interact on on uh, missing persons investigations and so what we do we increase our knowledge exactly that you you've gathered all this specialist knowledge an international network of people to help you investigating why is that so important because what you know it's broadening horizons i learned a long time ago in policing with the crime stoppers program that what you think's happening just in your backyard is actually universal and you you need to understand that it helps you to be not so critical of uh, of your own neighborhood and your own community or your own state but to understand that over the horizon there's it's a similar thing it's an evolutionary thing and you need to understand how to work with that with evolution and challenge and change and to have that international network helps you do that is it crucial val to pull your resources when you're investigating missing persons cases absolutely the, the thing with missing the, the thing with what we do we we have one or two active cases that we look at because you've got to understand these cases some of them are 20 30 years old and in many ways without being negative it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that they're not solvable but what we do we learn we learn about what we're looking at why it happened you know why the person wasn't followed were there any investigative gaps and understanding those gaps allows us to to develop the methodology in future investigations to perhaps not make the mistakes that may have been made yesteryear. It's interesting you say that because I know in writing and investigating the three books that I've written, you know, non-fiction books, often the matters I would see would actually not be international but would be on our state boundaries. And often I would find that one police service or police organisation wouldn't be sharing the intel about the same crook to another state like specifically I'm talking about older cases I'm not talking now but Brendan Abbott was a classic example of that I mean is that a real issue still in policing that people hold on to their intel it's not just look it's it's still an issue in some some areas and uh, but it's not just that they hold on to it there's often an inability for the different intel systems to 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 interact to communicate 
that's in a problem. That's a problem. Well, what we got to understand too, with with uh, with criminals or uh, missing persons or whatever, is is that they're not bound by some um, jurisdictional boundary as to where they can operate or where they can go to after they've committed a crime. And and that um, look, I've seen it in missing person cases, some very very tragic, which I, I won't go into in detail today, but where the fact that in, within a state, a police police uh, one one arm of the police is unaware of an investigation that's being conducted by someone else and has made a decision without the full knowledge of what's going on and it's been fatal you also developed a, a probability matrix val uh, a missing persons network score which taps into professional judgment in investigative decision making how does that work it's complicated, but I'll try to keep this snappy. What, when, the thing with policing is is that we, in investigative sense, the police are, are basically tuned to think that they everything they take before the courts, and rightly so, uh, the standard of, of proof is beyond reasonable doubt. But what we're talking about here is, is if you take that standard of thinking to the initial stages when you're starting to investigate a crime, you won't start because you don't have all of that evidence. It comes along the way, along the, the... I won't say along the journey. It comes along the way, OK? So what what happens is is that what we do with, uh, with, with MyPanet is we take in... We look at a case, pull it apart, take in all of the elements that make up that case, and we grade them according to the possibility or the likelihood of them influencing what we're looking at. And then what we do is we put a probability score on it. What that does is it gives us an indication as to where we should put our investigative resources, where we should prioritise them, and it justifies us making that decision. And it might change because it's all an unknown. It's all a maybe. So that's on the balance of probabilities, which is a different burden of proof than what you require ultimately when you get to court. Now, that's not only complicated, but how does it work in a court of law? Have you had any brief where that's been based, you know, which has been taken on board by a magistrate or by a jury? No, this is, look, this is a relative, it's, the, the concept is not, not new, but the way we've done it is, is quite unique. And it hasn't been um, subjected to any sort of um, judicial scrutiny or whatever. But look at it this way. If you go, if you're an investigator and you're taking your case to court and a defence or a judge says to you, why did you do that? Why did you prioritise your resources in that particular area? What's your justification? What well, we're saying that here is a here is a matrix system, an analytical system that basically says... Here's, the, here's the why I made that decision. It's based on structured professional judgment. Now, they could say, well, it was wrong. You say, okay, well, fair enough. At least I have a plan. I didn't just um, just pluck uh, an, uh, an idea out of uh, thin air and, and run with it. It's virtually an equation or a hypothesis. It's a structure. That's right. It's a, it's a structure that, that feeds, that gives you... Um, gives you the direction in, in which to sort of develop the hypothesis. But it could be wrong. Everything is a maybe in this sort of business. Everything's a maybe. Now, 
some of these missing persons cold cases, as we've been discussing, have really stuck with you. Like, for example, Warren Mayer's case. That case involved a a very experienced 57-year-old bushwalker. He said he wanted to go hiking along the Narbathon walking tracks on Easter Sunday in 2008. He set off but was never found again. What do you today believe happened to Warren, uh, Val? And I noticed that the coroner concluded that Warren died of unknown causes. What do you believe happened to him? Well, it's not a question of what I believe happened. It's a question of what does the probability say what happened. And we, this is where we developed this MyPanet score or the Missing Persons Network scoring system Because when we look at the risks that were in the bush that day that Warren Meyer went missing, there was a number of risks, and most of them were from human intervention, potential human intervention. And we graded those risks, and we believe that the greatest probability at this stage as to what happened to Warren Meyer was that somehow he came into, um, came or connected with a group of unknown shooters that were in a particular part of that bush at that particular time. And there's a whole lot of stuff behind that. There's all sorts of things like uh, telephone triangulation and timings and all that sort of stuff that put him in that same vicinity and some independent witnesses that 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 offer evidence or uh, statements in relation to the shooting. But it's quite complex. And it's, as again, as I said, it's the highest probability that we we have. Something happened with those shooters. And that was brought up in uh, the Channel 9 series under investigation, I noticed. And I noticed one of those independent witnesses gave um, evidence or or gave a statement um, on camera. Is that the basis of his, like he lived next, I think, very close to the track where Warren had gone and he actually heard... And I, I don't know if he was witness to, but he certainly heard the shooters. Is that, is that accurate? That is accurate. And, and, and there again is when we talk about sort of understanding what you're looking at, that particular witness, uh, when I looked at what he had to say and his wife had to say, I actually did an analysis on those people. I profiled those people to understand that what they're telling me then what sort of um, uh, what sort of credence can, can I place on what this what what value can I place on what they're telling me, and a profile of that particular witness's background um, established that he had an extensive experience with firearms and the bush hiking hunting the whole lot. Now what that does is is it, it lifts his credibility in the opinion stakes. So I've got to put, I've got to put some sort of uh, put some strength on what he's saying. So let's say that he was shot, if indeed he was, on your balance of probability. What happened to him, though? Where's his body? That's where it gets difficult. When you understand that the, the, the tracks in the bush, that, the, the tracks in that particular area are incredibly wide. You could drive a school bus down them, which is highly unusual, and a lot of deer trail through the scrub. But once you step off the, off the track in, in the bush, in the wilderness, it's like stepping off a cliff into the ocean. That's it in a nutshell. People say, "How can they disappear?" They can, and you could you could you could bury a body. You could put a body anywhere. They could run off into the bush and have some sort of mishap. There's any number of things, and the fact that you can conduct a great big search and you can't find them doesn't mean they're not there. 
Val, I, I noticed that Warren's wife, Z is still very much looking for answers, as of course you would. I think you worked pretty closely with her. What do those relatives go through with a missing persons case like this where it's unresolved and may never be resolved? I'll put it like, put it like this. Just imagine this. Imagine it's your husband, your sibling, your partner or your child. Your child. You pack their lunch, you send them off to school, never see them again, ever. Imagine if it's your husband who drives off to work, never see them again, ever. That's what we're talking about here. There is you know, People talk about closure. Closure is not the word that you apply to this. There's a term they use called ambiguous loss, which is a lot a lot closer to the mark. We're talking about never-ending grief. I can talk to people 40, 50 years down the track, not family, often searchers even, police investigators, children who their mate lost their mate 50 years ago, and now they're, they're old men. Or they're young, younger than me, so that makes them young men. But 50 years down the track, I can talk to them about the person that's missing, and they'll, it'll reduce them to tears. Male, female, doesn't matter. It never ends. So what you're talking about is trauma that actually is never resolved. Do they ever speak to councils about it? I suppose most of the time they wouldn't. Some do, and, and there's some services out there that do help them. One of the, I think probably at the forefront uh, of that is the Missing Persons Advocacy Network, which is separate to us, which is run by Lauren O'Keefe. It's a Victorian-based organisation. It, it is uh, theoretically international. There's, uh, they are fantastic in, in again, uh, voluntary, not funded, not funded, so they have to raise their own, raise their own money to, 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 to survive. They offer a fantastic uh, service of psychological um, assistance in some ways uh, to missing person uh, families in this country and to some extent internationally. They're the people that you need to look at. Look at their websites, look at what they can offer and just be aware that... Um, there's a lot more work than what they're resourced to do, unfortunately. Val, is that one of your, I suppose, reasons and motivations why you get involved in these missing persons cases? Because you deal a lot with the relatives, with the people that are left. Is that, is that part of your, I suppose, reason and as to why you do continue to investigate these matters? Look, Rochelle, I, I think about these things quite a lot and... I want to jump back to the Damien McKenzie case, which was the first one, and I'm still looking at it. And that was in that was September the fourth, nineteen seventy four. That little ten year old boy went missing, and when you see the photographs of that little boy, when you talk to the family, what 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 it does to me is I I put myself in in his shoes. His life ended at ten. And I remember what I was like as a 10-year-old, you know, wild, woolly and carefree, running around everywhere, you know, I thought I was Daniel Boone or whatever. But I'm now in my early 70s. I've had 60 years of thrills and spills that he's been denied. And to me, that's very sad. It's very tragic that, that he can't have enjoyed the fantastic life that I've had. 
or any or some of the rest of us have had. Val, you talk about that Damien McKenzie case. So this was a 10-year-old boy who was reported missing on the 4th of September 1974. He was missing whilst on an excursion to Stevenson Falls in Marysville, Victoria. Are there any new leads on that matter? No, there's not. The Damien McKenzie case has created, as with the Warramaya case and others, especially those two, but the Damien McKenzie case started, what it's done is it's created a legacy to Damien because we're, and the legacy is a legacy of knowledge that we now have in relation to um, how understanding these cases and understanding what we're looking at. And this, we could talk about this for hours and hours about how these things should be approached, first response, the investig- run in parallel investigations. They're doing it now. They're doing it on, they did it on one case now that, uh, before the courts. They did it on the Cleo Smith case in Western Australia. What you saw was full-on investigative detectives looking at what was reported as a missing person case. Time is crucial. So the things are changing. That's the legacy that... Um, that comes out of these old looking at these old cases and understanding the investigative gaps. As far as new leads are concerned, uh, we've learned a lot, not just about investigations. We've learned a lot about Damien's case. Um, we've interviewed a lot of people that were on that 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 excursion. I'd I'd like to see more. There's a number of them I'd still like to find because there are some gaps in it. Um, but yeah, no, it's still it's still going. If someone listening to this podcast is was on that bus or took that excursion, what would you recommend? Uh, who would they be reaching out and contacting Val? They can contact me if they were on that, that excursion on the 4th of September 1974 at Stevenson's Falls, Marysville, with the Young Australia League um, Youth Camp. They can contact me. They can find me through the um, Missing Persons Network site or through... Footprints in the Wilderness, which is another, it's our website. You can look at Footprints in the Wilderness and put dash missing persons or whatever. It will come up on the on a Google search and there's a contact um, uh, page there and you contact us. We'd love to hear from you. Val, recent cases like the missing couple, Russell Hill and Carol Clay in the high country, those sorts of cases have intrigued us and they dominate the media when they occur. Why are we so fascinated with missing persons cases? It's a very interesting question, extremely interesting question, and there's some contradictions in, in how we... The, 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 the need for knowledge in relation to missing person cases against sometimes this sort of bias I talked about before where people say, well, I know what happens. You know, silly old person's got himself lost or he's probably, she's probably run away or whatever or got off with another fellow or something like that, which, which is con- contradicts our inc- incredible interest in it. Now, what you've got to look at is when you look at missing person cases, it covers everything from dementia patients that have wandered off, uh, children that have got become lost teenagers that have run away i'll come back to them and people that have just become lost in the bush whatever and a sprinkling of abductions and murders we know that happens we know that happens big time 
And when we look at, say, now I come back to the runaways, which is an interesting one. When a teenager disappears, there's a, a natural tendency for people to say, I'll give them 48 hours, they'll come home. Or they'll probably run off with a boyfriend, da-da-da, whatever. Which, in some respects, may be the initial reason that they're gone. Maybe. Everything's a maybe. But the thing we must understand is, is that once they leave the once they leave the uh, sanctity of the home or whatever they're vulnerable when they become vulnerable then things can change so a teenage runaway can be a runaway from home for all sorts of reasons but then in a very short period of time they could be involved in human trafficking or or murdered which does happen and why do you think we're intrigued by these cases well, many many of the cases, the high profile cases, there's a there's a there's a lot of detail and imagination that people can sort of put into as to what they think happened. All the what I call reconologists, and you'll hear about that in another another forum. So there's a, a lot of that, and then there's a human tendency too, because a lot of people can connect. They can connect to family as you know. They can understand perhaps not understand because it's not happening to them, but have some sort of uh, strong sympathy for, for families that have lost a loved one and, and want to know what's happened, feel sad for them. In missing persons cases, Val, what's the golden hour in investigation? The first hour, the very first hour. And I say that from an investigative response, initial response phase, and this is one of the gaps that we see, and it's not just an Australian thing, it is, it is uh, universal. And what we're talking about here is as soon as someone makes contact with the responding agency that a person is missing, then the tasking and coordination should start straight away. There's somebody in the field, whether it's family or whatever, that's reporting it. If they're in the field, they need to be tasked. Very complex, but it's the, the first hour is the most crucial. The first minutes are most crucial. And then you've got to go forward, um, you've got to respond as fast as you can, but you've also got to go backwards to get the backstory. And Val, is it in like a lot of investigative cases, as they say, every contact leaves a trace? Is that the same in missing persons? Yeah, it is. That's a, one of those classic sort of investigative lines, every contact, that you know, the principles of exchange. I think uh, that... That, that, is, that is correct. So um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that would sort of reinforce that. But absolutely, every contact leaves its traces. And what we're talking about there too, when we're talking about contact, we're talking about psychological as well. And then we've got the internet and all that sort of thing. Everything needs to be pulled apart, but every contact leaves its traces, absolutely. Val, finally, what's next for you? What's next for, say, the Missing Persons Network? Okay, I'm, I'm not going to sort of really uh, let too much out because we're doing a lot of work at the moment. But what I can say is, is that we, we, are, we are currently looking at missing, presumed, murdered. And what the... Understanding better what that is... Um, this is only in Australia we're talking about at this stage. And the other thing that we're looking at too is we want to know, certainly from a wilderness perspective, because I'm really interested in people that get lost in the bush, we want to understand what motivates people to actually connect with the bush in the first place. Why do they go out there? 
you know you know what commonalities are there between all the different user groups in the bush are there differing agendas is there we know there is occasionally there's clashes between one group or one type of person out there you know whether they're against uh, with some other group out there that both want to enjoy the same space so we we're running a survey at the moment uh, on footprints in the wilderness uh, .com.au so you look up footprints in the wilderness missing persons and that survey is capturing data from anywhere in the world on why people need to get off the beaten track why they need to go into parks why need they need to fish whatever they want to do hug trees i don't care i want to know what motivates them and why they go into the bush so do that survey be good to also speak to the neo-nazis out there that also like to go into the bush yeah we're aware of we're aware of that um, those sort of groups that do go out there and we certainly know even uh, coincidentally even where warramaya went missing from i'm not saying there's any connection but what we are aware of is is that not far from there there was uh, quite a lot of um, activity involving those uh, neo-Nazi groups. Always fascinating speaking with you, Val, and look forward to your work in the future. Thanks very much for sitting with me today on The Crime Couch. Thanks for listening to my um, eccentric um, ramblings about missing persons investigations, Rochelle. Always a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Couch.